the blessedness of the morning is certainly a great one as we have been given the privilege of assembling together. Didn't the psalmist say in Psalm 26, 8, Lord, I have loved the habitation of thine house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. And as you and I have approached the services today, we have done so with a desire to offer our heartfelt thanks and praise unto God, to allow Him to challenge us in His Word, to praise Him in song and the other activities of our service in which we're privileged to engage. As mentioned earlier today, certainly we're thankful for the presence of each and every one and for the next few moments. Could I invite you to come with me as we give thought to another of our controversial topics of this year, and as we advance the slide on to our next one, we'll introduce it this way. During this calendar year of 2023, we have set before ourselves the task of looking on the second Sunday of each month at one of the topics that sometimes could be controversial as it relates to things presented in the Word of God or as it relates to things in terms of the applications. Last month, of course, we looked at a different topic and subject, and yet today we come to the matter of the withdrawal fellowship. I suspect as you give thought to that idea, again, it is one that, quite frankly, has turned into a rather great note of controversy among many circles of discussion today. As always, as you'll notice on that slide, it's merely our goal to allow the Word of God to express to us. We aren't interested in human thinking. We aren't interested in human speculation. In the words of Paul's famous question of Romans 4, 3, What saith the Scripture? What does the Bible say about this? It may well be that over the course of years or decades past, you and I may have recognized it hasn't been practiced all that often. And on occasions when it was practiced, no doubt there were times of great emotion, times often of issues in which brethren greatly divided over the characteristics of it. Let's begin to step into our lesson then like this. If one is going to withdraw fellowship under the heading of this discussion, it behooves us to ask, what is fellowship? What is it that's being withdrawn? May I point out to you at least a few ideas presented to us on this page. And doesn't it begin like this? Fellowship is an entity. It is a blessing that is highly regarded by the God of heaven. So much so, the church is the family of God. You and I read about that in the opening stanza of John's gospel account in which we learn about the character in verses 11, 12, and 13 about the fact that those who believe can become members of the family of God. In light of that, isn't it amazing then that later the inspired apostle would say, in Galatians 3, 26 and following, You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now that's just a very small sampling of passages reminding us about God's family. Sometimes we sing that song, God's family. It's a touching song. It's a potent song. It's a song filled with consideration about the beauty and the blessedness of the family of God. Doesn't it go without saying then that that family of God enjoys fellowship? Sometimes I suppose it's true human families perhaps don't enjoy much fellowship. There can be divisions and disagreements and people that don't get along. But the Lord never intended it that way in His body. You and I read in 1 John 1, verses 3 and following, how that you and I as Christians enjoy fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. 
It might well be that seventh verse is a constant reminder. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. That fellowship that we enjoy. Paul highlighted that in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9 as a matter connected to the beauty of what that congregation enjoyed and the fact that it came through the Lord. It isn't enough for someone just to claim that they enjoy this. It has to have the earmarks, if you please, of the fellowship of the Lord. In Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks in the God and the Father by Him. As you look near the bottom of that slide then, isn't it also a matter of reminder that the God of heaven encourages us then not only to enjoy that fellowship, but to closely guard it? That is to say, it's not to be just extended to anyone and anywhere, regardless of circumstances or otherwise. We are told in Ephesians 5.11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. We are furthermore told in 2 John verses 9, 10, and 11 about the fact that you can't even bid God's speed to those, you see, who uphold false doctrine and who are not in position to appreciate the unity and the fidelity of the faith. It might well then be in all of that. Fellowship's a very special thing. As you and I close that slide together, that then brings us to a note of sadness a note of great hurtfulness in many ways when we recognize that even as this was true in some New Testament examples, there are those Christians who do not regard that fellowship very highly. They have come to love the world more than that fellowship. They've come to love things which are not approved by the God of heaven more than they appreciate and cling to the notion of what that fellowship involves. And for that reason, it takes us really to the verses I have at the bottom of that slide. You may notice it was read a moment ago in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. As we reread that, it will in fact prompt us into some of our remainder of our discussion this morning. To the Thessalonian congregation, Paul wrote these words, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother, that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. Could I at least point out a thing or two about the language appearing in that passage? First, isn't it amazing the strength of it? Let me step through the passage again, drawing some attention to some of the elements as they in fact are presented. We command you, Paul wrote. In other words, this was a command. It was not an option. It was not merely a decision, if you please, prompted by what would otherwise be the thing humans sought best. But it's followed by this, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. One might have thought the word command would have been enough, and yet here it is in essence augmented by this amazing statement. We command you in the name of the Lord. This wasn't just Paul's expressed idea, though you and I regard Paul's expressed apostleship. That's wonderful. Paul here calls our attention to the fact the Lord commanded this. But then that's followed by this, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh, dis that walketh disorderly. And that adverb disorderly 
is in qualified, not after the tradition which he received of us. It is possible to note again the strength of this commandment. And now let's note a few additional observations to help us understand and to make ready application. First, a brother that walks disorderly. Thankfully, the New Testament provides some additional information. What about the sins then of which someone might be guilty that might bring about the cause for the withdrawal of fellowship? You'll notice this list is rather lengthy. In verse 14 of this same chapter, we have a reference to a givenness to false doctrine. A person who at one time was a faithful member of the family of God who comes to follow after things false. Various things, you see, not consistent with the doctrinal teaching of the New Testament. But not only that. In Romans 16, 17, Paul gave order to the church at Rome that they, in fact, follow this particular idea there in light of those that cause divisions and factions. Someone who, again, brings about schisms in the body. Someone who does not find him or herself submitting to the elders, but in fact are attempting to dominate or otherwise to cause divisions and factions. Furthermore, in that text of 1 Corinthians 5, we have this interesting description. Now there again, are you already noticing, whether it be the church at Thessalonica, whether it be the church at Rome, whether it be the church at Corinth, Paul had much to say, you see, about the withdrawal of fellowship. It wasn't just a localized thing for some small group of people. Every congregation of the Lord's people needs to be mindful of that teaching and one who highly regards the features characteristic of it. And so in 1 Corinthians 5, we encounter there the explicit case of the need of the Corinthian church for withdrawing fellowship from a gentleman. He was guilty of fornication, the text tells us. But now you may notice this in verse number 11. But now I have written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such and one know not to eat. So it's not only for the sin of fornication, but as Paul here highlighted, it was a more expansive consideration. Could we not make this observation any sin? that could thus jeopardize a person standing eternally before God, it would be a matter of importance for a congregation of loving people to express concern and interest in regard to that person's soul. And here again, you may notice, fornication was of course mentioned, but also covetousness. May I point out, that one certainly is intriguing, because after all, there are times when you and I would not be as openly available to appreciate the existence of covetousness. We can tell fornication. Someone living with somebody they shouldn't be living with, someone in having sexual relations with someone to whom they're not entitled. But covetousness, for example, or extortion, or someone who is a reviler. You and I may thus notice as we observe the characteristics of our brothers and sisters, we must be mindful of the symptoms and signs of things that could be recognized matters that would indicate some issues, some problems. That's why that our elders are those who watch. They have given, been, been given care of this flock, for example. 
And so they're concerned about all of our souls as they watch. They may well on occasion need to ask questions of you and me just so that they can be convinced and aware of the fact that all is well with your soul and mine. But we shouldn't be offended by the questions that they ask. And we shouldn't be in position to become defensive, but rather thankful that they're watching for our souls. In Hebrews 13, 17, we're told they'll have to give account, you see, given the character of that watchfulness to which they have been given. As you close that slide with me, we thus have seen that then there are various attributes of the New Testament that would thus be deserving and worthy of the withdrawal fellowship. But let's ask some more questions as we see on our next slide. So consider with me some specifics connected to how the New Testament describes this. Even as we begin this discussion, couldn't we pause long enough to say, and there are many who, of course, have felt this way, do you mean to tell me you're going to actively withdraw fellowship from somebody? Isn't that rather unchristian? Isn't that rather mean and mean-spirited and ugly? Well, might you and I say that we need to be ready for responses when there are those who ask us these things. So let's notice a few particulars, shall we? First of all, would you note with me, you don't withdraw fellowship just because somebody sins. If that's true, all of us would be subjects of, of disfellowship because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And in fact, even later, we notice in 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9, any man that says he has no sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. And so the point is you don't withdraw fellowship from someone who might be guilty of sin. That's not the point. Rather, as you can see on that slide, you withdraw fellowship from somebody that won't repent. That's the key. Someone who becomes aware of the sin in which he or she is engaged, but then refuses to repent, refuses to turn from it, refuses to adopt again the practices and lifestyle connected to faithful service to the Lord. And so repentance is the main idea. Someone that refuses to repent. You may notice near the bottom of that slide that in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 6 that the withdrawal of fellowship is therein described as a punishment inflicted by many. A congregation is what does this. A group of people who love that person's soul more than he or she loves their own soul. They are so committed to attempting to rescue that person from doom that they are willing to withdraw their social fellowship, to withdraw fellowship as described in the Bible. And in so doing, the hope, of course, is what we'll, that we shall describe shortly. You may notice one last thing on that slide. That person who refuses to repent. You know, the Word of God provides us the understanding connected to the style of life, the way of life, the activities of life, that God approves. And that adverb that Paul used, disorderly, the idea that goes with that from the original Greek seems to be this. You and I know that an, infant, an infantry of marching men, they march in step. And you and I appreciate that's not only true of our country, but around the world we notice that when military parades or military appreciations are made, the individuals march in step. Disorderliness is not marching in step. That is to say, somebody, some member of the church, 
has chosen to not march in step with the others, all of whom are attempting to march in step with God. And therein lies the danger. This person that's seeing things differently to the point where he or she is committed to living a life of sin, a life that's inconsistent with Bible truth. Let's look at our next point then. What's the purpose of this withdrawal of fellowship? Why would a church do this? Everyone would agree, of course. It's not fun. It's not pleasant. It's not something that you would want to do. But yet, Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, as well as the Roman church, as well as the Corinthian church, about the needfulness of this. Here's why you do it. The Bible gives us two reasons. They're both found in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. Remember, there was a man living in fornication there, and Paul directly ordered that congregation of the fact that they needed to withdraw fellowship from him. In the midst of that discussion, the following verses are found. May I read verses 5, 6, and 7? To deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. And so the two reasons that the inspired penman has provided us are these. First, that person's eternal salvation hinges perhaps on this. To this point, perhaps many other things have been done in an effort to rescue that person's way of thinking. Family members may have spoken, church members may have spoken, but that speaking to this point has done no good. It has not availed anything. There's been no repentance. But you'll notice here Paul said this, last step, deliver this person to Satan. This choice they have made is such that it again is wrong. But in so doing, that same verse, verse 5, says that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. It may be that upon reflection of what they've lost, the fellowship that they once enjoyed, the community of the saved of which they once were a faithful part, having now lost that, maybe, just maybe, they shall come to their senses and repent and turn back to the Lord. That's the hope. That's why the church does it. But note the second reason. The second reason is also mentioned, verse number 5 as well as verse number 6. A little leaven will invariably leaven the whole lump. You and I understand that premise. Influences by way of the way in which they develop, they impact others. And if here's one person committing this particular sin, then it'll not be very long before others in that congregation will begin to feel at least similarly, if not about that same sin, about some other one. Well, he or she's living that way. The elders didn't do anything. The congregation still accepts him or her like always. I don't see any harm if I do this. And pretty soon, pretty soon, that congregation in many ways has become a very dim shell of the truth that it once had so strongly upheld. And so those two reasons highlight for us the thinking connected to why the Lord encouraged, in fact commanded, the matters connected to this. 
may I state too that we are given such beautiful pictures in the Bible about the sweetness and the purity of the church. Christ's body was pure. His spiritual body must be maintained that way as well. You'll notice verses such as Ephesians 5, 27, The church, as the Lord described it, is without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And so it can't tolerate openness and sin. A person who is supposed to be a faithful Christian living in a way that's given to unfaithfulness, that wouldn't be becoming of what the church is to stand for. Point number three is then this one. What else might we say? Among the matters we've already noted... We could certainly be quick to add this one. Why would a congregation withdraw fellowship? To be right. If it's the case that the God of heaven commands it, that it be done, and if a church knowledgeable of circumstances, and then they refuse to withdraw that fellowship, can it rightfully be said that they are behaving as God would wish them to? Can it be rightfully said that they are doing all things in word and deed the way that God has organized it and ordained it? On that question, I ask it this way. You and I, no doubt, would be very, very bothered if a congregation of the Lord's church didn't baptize people. Maybe their supposed study had led them to believe, well, baptism really isn't sufficient, and you and I would be quick to call that into question because we'd say the Bible commands that, and there is no other way of thinking. Why not apply that same logic to the withdrawal of fellowship? The Bible commands it, in fact, in more than one verse. And yet, if we refuse to do it when it's appropriate, could we rightfully be said to be doing all things as the Lord would have commanded it? I believe to ask that question is to answer it. Surely then, in light of whether it be Rome or Corinth or Thessalonica, you and I begin to see how often it was the will of God that this be mentioned and that it be discussed. As I mentioned earlier, it's not a pleasant item for discussion. No one would say that it is. But out of love, out of the welfare of the congregation and that person's soul, we have to consider it and make proper approach to it. I close that slide by mentioning again several things of which you and I would never, ever have any issues or questions. But now let's apply that same idea this way. That person who is withdrawn from, what does that person need to do to be right with God? May I say it like this? According to the New Testament teaching, there's nothing more that person has to do now than from before when the church withdrew from him or her. In other words, there is still the need for repentance and still the need for confession. And that church would be more than delighted to no doubt welcome that person back in open arms, understanding of the change in the person's life. And in that case, the very issue described in 1 Corinthians 5 has come to fruition. The person's soul would be saved. Things would again be well. And that fellowship could again be so readily and beautifully extended to be right. Surely we all would wish to be right. As you'll notice on the next slide as we look at point number four. So what should a congregation do in light of a circumstance in which there's a person who has chosen to walk disorderly? 
Needless to say, again, there would be much time spent in prayer, much time spent in serious contemplation, because you would not want to do this inappropriately. But may I ask that we all keep in mind the Lord gave us some inspired direction in the wording of Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, where there Jesus pointed out rather directly that you first go to a brother individually. And so someone knowledgeable of this person's disorderly stepping behavior goes to this person, speaks to him or her, and in love attempts to describe the circumstances of what the Bible teach. Hopefully, hopefully the person would respond in great consideration, understanding that he or she has made error and that they would like to make it right. But of course they may not. Jesus then said, take one or two witnesses with you, that in the mouth of, again, a small number, every word might be established. And so some witnesses go along with the person and under discussion, a very powerful and kind presentation is made where no doubt much reference to the Word of God takes place, understandings of what the Bible teaches. Hopefully there will be repentance at that point and an approach to the truth of God. But again, it might not. The person might continue to remain in that condition, in that state of disorderliness. Jesus then said this, bring it to the church. May I say at that point, so the church, again, no doubt in many instances, would share their concern, would speak to this individual, would talk to him or her lovingly, directly, powerfully, directing many prayers on this person's behalf. Hopefully in time, with that kind of activity taking place, the man or woman may come to their senses, turning back to the faith they once had grasped. But of course they may not. The last step is the one before us this morning. Jesus said, if that won't happen, let this person be as a publican. You withdraw fellowship. You make this final declaration, a final stand on the truth of the Word of God. You have done those other matters appropriately, and now you withdraw fellowship. Would you turn back with me to 1 Corinthians 5 for just a moment? Beginning in verse 1, Paul wrote, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. First notice, this was commonly known. It wasn't hidden. It wasn't secretive. It was commonly understood. And such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. Now may I point out, it was fornication that was the issue. It happened to be. The, man, the, the man's father's wife, that is to say his stepmother. But the issue of who the fornication was with is not the critical matter. It was fornication. And now verse 2. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. The thing needful was this person needed to be taken away from them. What fellowship needed to be withdrawn, and yet the congregation was puffed up. They apparently were accepting of him. They weren't in any way admonishing or rebuking or warning him. They were treating him, in essence, as one of their own. Paul said, not only is this not good, for reasons he's now about to describe, it was terrible for the person's eternal well-being. Notice the following. For I verily, 
as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. This fleshly behavior, this fornication, that needed to stop. Because you and I know fornicators won't go to heaven. Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21, lists for us the works of the flesh. And Revelation 22, one last time highlights it. So this person is traveling the roadway to eternal doom like this. In love, we can't let them think that everything's fine. In love, we cannot let him think that everything is acceptable to God. The congregation was puffed up. That's not good. He then says this, When you're gathered together, the church must be in agreement about this. The church works together in unison in regard to this. The withdrawal of fellowship will do virtually no good if 75% of the congregation is in favor of it and 25% are against it. It'll do no good if 50% are for it and 50% are not. It has to be a unified whole such that this person understands the severity of the life that he's chosen or she's chosen, recognizing, of course, the consequences of it. When they were gathered together, Paul now puts this before them in verse number 8. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world." Paul here reminds us rather powerfully, this is for members of the body of Christ. Now, someone in the community may be engaging in fornication, and as sad as that makes us, they're not our brother in Christ. If you were, in fact, to withdraw from everybody living in any way, you couldn't associate with anybody practically or do anything. But Paul's point here is with respect to the body of Christ. Because he says now in verse 11, I've written unto you not to keep company if any man that's called a brother. This is someone, again, that was a member of the body of Christ. Someone who had chosen that style of life and now has turned their back upon it. These are the ones that our heart breaks for. Because didn't Peter remind us later that those who knew the way of the Lord and turned from it, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. It'll be harsher, more severe on the day of judgment for them than if they had never even obeyed the gospel. It's serious, isn't it? No wonder we in earnestness and in love desire to do what the Lord will allow us to do in the withdrawal of this matter of fellowship. And so on that slide, if we've highlighted as we follow those steps of the Lord, a congregation that does this... No doubt, much time spent in prayer, discussion, conversation. But what about step number five? What else could we say as it relates to these matters before us? As you give thought to carrying out this matter of withdrawing a fellowship, you might ask, well, how long do you wait? 
Is it not clear from our discussion points already that this could certainly vary depending on the individual circumstances? Someone who is a novice in the faith, that person may not know and understand yet, and so it may take some careful instruction. On the other hand, a person who otherwise would have been a seasoned Christian who steps into a lifestyle like this. Clearly, again, the eldership, the congregation would just be very sensitive to issues concerning the particulars of this. But again, we must say, the congregation can't wait indefinitely. In love, they must do something and do it fairly soon. Because after all, the person could die and they'd die lost like this. Or otherwise, there could be others influenced by that which they've chosen to do, and so that soul might be greatly damaged or otherwise influenced. The eldership, no doubt, would greatly spend some careful points of discussion amongst themselves, amongst other seasoned leaders in their congregation, and perhaps even talk about the features with this person many, many times. As we come to step number six, could we not put it like this? Number six and seven I put on the same slide. Would you please turn back with me to the Second Thessalonian letter? And let's look at some final observations that Paul makes. First of all, how does it then look when one withdraws fellowship? What is it that that really means? Well, I think the verb is clear enough. To withdraw something means you cease it or stop it or you restrict it. And so it is. Withdrawing a fellowship literally means to withdraw fellowship. You no longer are able to have social connectivities and social interactions with this person as they may once have taken place so readily and so joyously and with such intrigue and no doubt such blessing. In fact, in that text of 1 Corinthians 5 that you and I read a moment ago, it goes so far as you can't eat with them. You can't enjoy that kind of fellowship of community with them any longer. They must understand that you are not a part of them and they are not a part of you. And it's not because of any choice otherwise but what they've chosen to live aloof from God, to live apart from Him, to live in a way that they have purposefully and deliberately refuse to repent, and to live in a way that their soul is not only in danger, but currently it's lost. Currently it is lost. And repentance is what's going to be required in order for them to again enjoy the blessedness of salvation. You don't withdraw fellowship from someone that's saved. There's no reason to. You withdraw fellowship from someone who is lost and refuses to repent. As you'll notice here at the top of that slide, Romans 16, 17 pointed out that you avoid them. Now that is to say, you do so in such a way that you understand so that they are aware of the choices that they've made. The wording that's presented in that passage and those that follow it just simply point out in such great strength. Social niceties are no more can't just gather to watch a ball game with them. You can't invite them over to enjoy a meal with you. You can't go have one with them. That part no longer is a capability, else it's displeasing to God. 
No wonder in that connection, could I now perhaps at least say this. Would they be welcomed at the services of the church? Oh, absolutely. Where else would you want them to be? You might want them to finally be touched by the power of the Lord's gospel, by the power of the mission of desiring to save their soul. You would hope that they might come. But when they do, you still can extend to them fellowship to the extent that they might be confused of your acceptance of them. You have to understand that we admonish them. We warn them. We try to instruct and teach them. In so doing, we always set before them the desire that we would wish for them to be saved. Paul would make one final statement, and certainly it's a vital one. In that text of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Notice Paul himself even wrote, if I can draw your attention to the verse in which he directly makes this point. As you read through this chapter, chapter number 3, he says in verse 15, Count him not as an enemy, but admonish him. You see, you may think that, well, if I'm withdrawing fellowship from him, then I now hate him, I despise him. That mustn't be the way we think. He's a soul too. He's an immortal spirit that will stand before the God that made him or her in judgment and give an answer for the deeds done in the body. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. It is our strong desire that this person will come back to the appreciation of faithfulness and fidelity and love for the Lord. But certainly we realize it must be their decision. And so we admonish. We encourage. We pray. We try to set an example of direct fidelity to the Lord before him or her. But we don't treat them like an enemy. We don't insult or blaspheme or berate them. We simply so much hope that they'll be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. But it's their decision. It's that person's choice. As you close that slide with me, aren't we still in such loving favor to appreciate the passage in Luke 17, 3? If he repents, forgive him. The person's got to repent. You can't make them. God doesn't make anybody do anything. Everything in the Lord's service is on a volunteer basis. He invites, he encourages, he implores, he insists, but he lets you and me make the decision. And so it is with this person. And so we would lovingly hope that the Lord's teaching on this wouldn't be seen as controversial, although our world would like to paint it so. The Word of God again discusses it so very often. Let's close our lesson with 2 Corinthians 2 verse 7. I mentioned earlier that in that Corinthian church there was a man living in fornication. In 2 Corinthians 2 we have this beautiful presentation. In the opening eight verses of that chapter, Paul describes that circumstance, and that man repented. He did. Apparently, with the withdrawal of fellowship was effective. Apparently, it caused that gentleman to recognize the error of his way. Paul, in fact, was so strong as to say that congregation, after that man's repentance, you now extend to him the open arms of fellowship and treat him again the way that he would be as a brother. You don't hold the grudge over him because of the way he once had lived. You and I recognize God has a heart of forgiveness, and you and I would wish to do the same. 
upon the repentance of that individual. The conclusion slide closes our lesson today, reminding each of us of how much God loves us. So much so that He commands the congregation to withdraw their fellowship from you or me if we proceed to walk disorderly. That's the extent to which the God of heaven wishes His people to go in order to ensure, encourage the salvation of those who begin to walk disorderly. I've summarized a few of the things that we have studied there today with the hope that our study of this subject, though controversial for some, the Word of God seemingly makes it rather direct and plain. We're going to stand in just a moment and extend the invitation of the Lord. As each of us examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it's an opportunity then to always demand that we have a tender heart. May none of us ever become hard-hearted to where we are basically intended to do what we want regardless what the Bible says. For let it be a certain thing that if we reach that point, we are headed to doom. Our heart must be tender and open to the teaching of the Bible. If there's anyone in this assembly that otherwise, for a variety of reasons, might wish to come forward. We would want you to know that we as a congregation of the Lord's people would desire to extend to you the loving character of the Lord's invitation, inviting you to come at this particular time. It's a convenient time. But it's also the case that we would invite consideration about this matter withdrawal and encourage to come and do so in light of what the Lord would wish for spirits to be saved for souls to be well with God, for the kind of fellowship that once was enjoyed to be enjoyed again. This song is one that again is called a song of invitation, but it's always the Lord's invitation. It isn't mine, it isn't our elders, it's the Lord's. And if we could be of a part, a small part of assistance in that, we'd wish to do it and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.